Well, we continue this morning our series together called Following Jesus Together. We're in the Gospel of John, so if you haven't been with us, we've spent the last 14 weeks or so walking with Christ through His Word, and we find ourselves this morning um, in part one, or rather, really it's part two, of a lengthy text of Christ um, as He gives a monologue. And so uh, it's a larger section that goes all the way down to the end of verse 45. Perhaps your Bibles have red letter in them to show you when Jesus is speaking. We are confining our attention just to the beginning, verses 16 to 24. And Lord willing, we'll pick it up again next time together. And on we go. If you're taking notes, the subtitle of the message this morning is Jesus gives life to whom he will. Jesus gives life to whom he will. I'm going to read verses 16 to 24, set the whole text before us, pray, and then we'll look to the Lord and his word. Verse 16 begins, And this was why the Jews were persecuting Jesus, because he was doing these things on the Sabbath. But Jesus answered them, My father is working until now, and I am working. Well, this is why the Jews were seeking all the more to kill him, because not only was he breaking the Sabbath, but Jesus was even calling God his own father, making himself equal with God. So Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, The son can do nothing of his own accord, but only what he sees the father doing. For whatever the father does, the son does likewise. For the father loves the son and shows him all that he himself is doing. And greater works than these will he show him so that you may marvel. For as the Father raises the dead and gives them life, so also the Son gives life to whom He will. For the Father judges no one, but has given all judgment to the Son, that all may honor the Son, just as they honor the Father. Whoever does not honor the Son does not honor the Father who sent Him. Truly, truly, I say to you, Whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life. And he does not come into judgment, but has passed from death to life. Well, this is God's word. Let's look to him together in prayer. Father, here your son is speaking to us from the word And these words of the Son are food for our souls. They are a light to our path and lamp to our feet. And so we pray that your Spirit would fill us and accomplish your purposes in us. Lord, that your word would not return void in any one of our hearts, but it would be used to save those who don't know you, to to rescue us from that fixed day of coming judgment, that you would cause those who aren't yet living to pass from death to life. And for those of us who do know you, Lord, who who have confessed the Son and believe you 
Father, would you please strengthen our souls this morning that we would marvel, as your text says, that we would marvel and stand or sit in wonder and awe that you are God, there is no other. All greatness, power, glory, and majesty belong to you. And, and the, the, the beaming truth of those words break through the clouds of our lives this morning. So to that end, Lord, would you let the words of my mouth and the meditation of our hearts be acceptable in your sight. O Lord, our rock and our redeemer and all of God's people said, amen. Who is Jesus? The most important question that any human being could ever possibly seek to answer, who is Jesus? And I mean, who is Jesus really? Because any given uh, holiday, Christmas or Easter, walk through the supermarket, look at the magazine covers, and you're going to see a whole multitude of um, suggestions at who Jesus is. Because we live in a world that is addicted to making a God in our own image, and we want to make Jesus in our own image. So when I say who is Jesus, I mean who is he really? Not as we think that he is, but who is Jesus as he says he is? Related to that question is yet another question. How important is getting Jesus' identity right. Have you ever thought about that? How important is it in getting Jesus' identity right? Can you be 72.5% correct on who Jesus is? And then that's sufficient for salvation? How about 93.7%? How important is getting Jesus' identity right... Uh, is it okay if you stay fuzzy and just have a vague notion of who Jesus is? Is it okay for your um, notion of who Jesus is to be rooted and grounded primarily in emotions and preference rather than revelation? Because we could go get, you know, go, go, go out and, and do polls on the streets and begin to ask people this question, who is Jesus? And we will get all manner of responses, right? Wise sage, uh, a proto-New Age guru, uh, uh, a dirt hippie, uh, uh, whatever it is. Some will say that he was mistaken and not God, and, and on it goes. But there's more questions underneath those questions. Have you ever thought about this? How does knowing Jesus rightly impact or even relate to knowing the Father rightly. In other words, can you understand God the Father correctly, but be mistaken about Jesus? Or flip that, can you understand Jesus correctly, but be mistaken about God the Father? Jesus, here in this passage this morning, is preaching his first lengthy monologue of the gospel of John and Jesus answers questions like these the most fundamental questions of human existence and more in this passage now if you've been with us previously Jesus is responding in the previous verses Jesus is responding to the fact 
that the Jews are now seeking to openly kill him. They want to destroy the author of life. And they want to kill Jesus because Jesus healed an invalid, a man who was laying by a pool. And Jesus healed this man on the Sabbath, the holy day for the people of Israel. And so Jesus' response is not thin, shallow, um, best life now self-help Christianity. Jesus is going to preach a long and strong sermon. And Jesus really doesn't care about addressing those who are seeking to kill him. But he uses this healing point to preach not just to the Jews listening to him, but all who are around him about the identity and more of not just Jesus, but the Father, and by implication, the Spirit. And so Jesus' response is lengthy. It is very theologically deep, especially since this is one of the main Trinitarian passages in the Bible. So it's going to take us a few weeks to unpack what Jesus says. So with that, if you're taking notes, here's how our outline comes to us. Five points this morning really going verse by verse practically. Uh, Point number one, Jesus works the work of the Father. That's verses 16 and 19. Jesus works the work of the Father. Number two, the Father loves the Son. That's verse 20. And then we will see that Jesus saves whom he wills. That's verse 21. And then the point number four, To dishonor Jesus is to dishonor the Father. And we'll focus on verses 22 and 23 for that. And then we'll end our time with this. To escape judgment, believe Jesus for eternal life. And that is verse 24. One of the difficulties of preaching this passage is that it is nestled and embedded and attached like uh, train cars to the whole chapter of, of, of chapter 5, all the verses therein, all the way down to verse 42. So we're looking at a snippet, and so we're building off last week, and then this week will be a stepping stone for next week, and so on. But let's get right into it. Point number one, Jesus works the work of the Father. Look again with me at verses 16 through 19. This was why the Jews were persecuting Jesus, because he was doing these things, as healing the invalid man. He was doing these things on the Sabbath. But Jesus answered them, My Father is working until now, and I am working. This is why the Jews were seeking all the more to kill him, because not only was Jesus breaking the Sabbath, Jesus was even calling God his own Father, making himself equal with God. So Jesus said to them, truly, truly, I say to you, the son can do nothing of his own accord, but only what he sees the father doing for whatever the father does, the son does likewise. We're going to see in these passages this morning that Jesus's overarching point is to explain who he is who the Father is, their relationship with each other, and how that relationship manifests manifests itself in the good news gospel of Jesus having come to seek and save 
the lost. Now, as you put your eyes on these verses, 16 and 19, notice first what we learn about God the Father in verse 17. Jesus says, He is working until now. Or, He is working up to this point. What, what does Jesus mean? Well, Jesus is using the truth about the Father, whatever it means that the Father is working until now, as a counter argument and proof text to these Jews for why he did not break the Sabbath, the day of rest. Jesus did not break the Sabbath when he healed the invalid man from uh, the previous text, nor did Jesus break the Sabbath when he uh, broke the so-called man-made rules that these religious leaders had added to the text when he healed the man. What does it mean that the Father is working? Well, you can recall back to the second chapter of the Bible, Genesis 2. And Genesis, verses, Genesis 2, verses 2 and 3 tell us that when God finished his work in creation, God Sabbathed. He rested on the seventh day, and God made it holy. And then later, God would make the Sabbath the sign of the Mosaic Covenant. Every seventh day on Saturday, Israel would rest and cease from work, and that would be a sign of them maintaining covenant with God and more. But here's what this does not mean. The fact that God rested on the seventh day does not mean that God got the world spinning, and then he went and sat on his cosmic couch and has been sitting there doing nothing ever since he started all things. No, God, because he is God, actively works and sustains every moment of human history, every molecule of creation, and every mind of the universe. Every moment, molecule, and mind of this universe is under the sovereign jurisdiction and control and active actions of God himself. The Father is working. And God is working every moment, molecule, and mind to his gospel ends in Jesus Christ to bring us to glory. So even though the Israelites were to rest every Saturday, God does not cease from his work in upholding the universe by the word of his power. So lest we miss the point of this passage, the religious leaders come to our aid. That's one of the great things about all of the verbal duels that Jesus gets into the religious leaders, is Jesus says um, enigmatic and strange things. They're hard to understand. What does he mean when he says that? And thankfully, the religious leaders often get it, and in their getting it, their response helps us understand what Jesus is saying. What do I mean? Lest we miss the point about the Father working and therefore the Son is working, Jesus is working, their response to Jesus' words shows us what Jesus means. Verse 18. This was why the Jews were seeking all the more to kill him. Because not only was Jesus breaking the Sabbath, and their concern was Jesus breaking their man-made rules added to the Sabbath, but he was also calling God his own father. Okay, so what? Making himself equal with God. So for Jesus to say he is working because his father is working 
It's not to say that Jesus is a mere adopted um, human son. That's not what he's saying. The text is clear. Jesus is not only calling God his own father in a way that's distinct from all humanity, but Jesus is claiming equality with God. Equality with God. Now, we've been reading and following Jesus together in the Gospel of John. We, we have read and looked at John chapter 1. We have seen all of the proofs, texts, and evidences that Jesus himself is God the flesh, God in the flesh, second person of the Trinity, cloaked in skin. But here, Jesus is now making it public. He's making it public. And there is no greater blasphemy than this for Jesus to claim equality with God, except that it's true. So it's not blasphemy. It's one of the truest things. It's the truest thing in all the universe. Jesus is equal with God. So on the one hand, Jesus is the incarnate Son. And on the other hand, Jesus is equal with the Father. In no way, shape, or form is Jesus saying he is the Father. Jesus is saying he is equal with the Father. So Jesus is clearly distinct from the Father. Neither is Jesus claiming to be a second God next to the Father, for then he could not be equal or one with the Father. And the Jews get this, but they don't actually get this. They just get this enough to not believe it, but hate it, and want to kill Jesus because the darkness hates the light. Jesus is teaching on the triune nature of God himself. No loftier, exquisite, mysterious, or marvelous topic can we exhaust our minds with than who is God in himself as Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Jesus teaches on the Trinity, and the religious leaders want to destroy him for it. In, in this light, notice also that when what we learned of Jesus in verse 19, verse 19 says, So Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, the Son can do nothing of his own accord, but only what he sees the Father doing. Whatever the Father does, the Son does likewise. Now in these verses, these religious leaders are only concerned about religious rules and making sure that every uh, I was dotted and T crossed, and just if you just obeyed and did the right thing, then things are okay. And Jesus is giving them the highest theological lesson you could possibly take. This is an advanced course in getting a PhD at seminary, but it's in your Bible. This is your daily devotions. So rather than reading this and saying, well, that's weird talk, not knowing what Jesus means and moving on, Let's look into it. Jesus is explaining what it means for God to be God and nothing less than triune Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. There is mystery here as to what is being said, but what is clear, especially in verse 19, is that the ongoing work of the Father is done through Jesus by the Spirit. 
The ongoing work of the Father is being done through Jesus by the Spirit. In other words, within God himself, Jesus is claiming to be the Son. And we will look more at that in the coming weeks. God the Son made flesh. Jesus is claiming to be the second person of the Trinity. Not two gods. Not a lesser God. Not a man who became adopted and then became a God. None of those things. But that Jesus is equal with the Father in his eternity. Equal with the Father in everything. There is no place where Jesus is unequal with the Father. And so the Jews want to kill him for it. And yet Jesus is not the Father. He's Jesus. He is God the Son. And for Jesus to do the works of the Father means... That within the Godhead, to use an old word, there is no disunity. There is no disagreement. There is no separation within the work of the Trinity. So the Father planned the gospel. Jesus performed the gospel. And the Spirit applies the gospel. We rightly summarize the Bible as redemptive history. From beginning to end... The main character of this book is God in the person of Jesus Christ and his gospel to seek and save the lost by God becoming flesh, going to a cross to bear our, to bear our sins on that cross, to die in our place, condemned so that we could be accepted, and then rising from the grave. And these words here in John 5 have sparked some of the deepest thought in the history of the church. What does it mean when Jesus says that he is equal with the Father and yet not the Father and doing the work of the Father and doing nothing but what he sees the Father doing? Well, the best aid that I can give us comes from the Athanasian Creed. The Athanasian Creed, we have um, forebearers in the faith grandmas and grandpas who have spent their entire existence thinking about what the Word of God says and who God is. And so our forebears wrote the Athanasian Creed. It's ascribed to Athanasius, an early church father. It's believed this was written in the 400s. And this is one of the um, early systematic theologies. John Calvin invented systematic theology. So this is an early summation of what the Bible teaches. Let me read you the 28 verses, the beginning 28 verses of the Athanasian Creed. It says this. Just listen to how people in the year 400 thought and consider whether they are wise or not. You're going to hear the word Catholic. Don't freak out. The word Catholic, lowercase c, means universal. We're not talking about the Holy Roman Catholic Church. Contrary to their claims, they did not exist yet. Whoever desires to be saved should above all hold to the universal or Catholic faith. Anyone who does not keep it in whole and unbroken will doubtless perish eternally. Now, this is the universal or Christian faith, the Catholic faith, that we worship one God in Trinity and the Trinity in unity, neither confounding their persons nor dividing the essence. For the person of the Father is a distinct person, the person of the Son is another, and that of the Holy Spirit still another. 
but the divinity of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit is one. The glory equal, the majesty co-eternal. Such as the Father is, such is the Son, such is the Holy Spirit. The Father is uncreated, the Son is uncreated, the Holy Spirit is uncreated. The Father is immeasurable, the Son is immeasurable, the Holy Spirit is immeasurable. The Father is eternal, the Son is eternal, the Holy Spirit is eternal. And yet there are not three eternal beings, but there is one eternal being. So too there are not three uncreated or immeasurable beings, there is but one uncreated and immeasurable being. Similarly, the Father is almighty, the Son is almighty, the Holy Spirit is almighty. Yet there are not three almighty beings, there is but one almighty being. Thus the Father is God, the Son is God, the Holy Spirit is God. Yet there are not three gods, there is but one God. Thus the Father is Lord, the Son is Lord, the Holy Spirit is Lord. Yet there are not three lords, there is but one Lord. Just as Christian truth compels us to confess each person individually as both God and Lord, so the universal Catholic religion, Christianity, forbids us to say that there are three gods or three lords. The Father was neither made nor created nor begotten from anyone. The Son was neither made nor created. He was begotten from the Father alone. The Holy Spirit is neither made nor created nor begotten. He proceeds from the Father and the Son. Accordingly, there is one Father, not three fathers. There is one Son, not three sons. There is one Holy Spirit, not three Holy Spirits. None in this Trinity is before or after. None is greater or smaller. In their eternity, the three persons are co-eternal and co-equal with each other. So in everything, as was said earlier, the unity in Trinity, the Trinity in unity, is to be worshipped. Anyone then who desires to be saved should think thus about the Trinity. And on it goes. I think our forebearers were smart. What this does is not explain what God is. This all attaches the whole Bible's teaching to what the Bible says about God, namely how God reveals himself in Scripture. And this just helps us understand that we worship one God in three persons. The harmony and mystery of the Trinity is perfect beyond all measure. Now pause for a moment. Think what I said earlier. Does the identity of Jesus matter for your salvation? And does your understanding of Jesus really matter to your understanding of the Father? Can you get one wrong and the other right or vice versa? And Jesus is rebuking these religious leaders and giving this deep lesson in revealing who God is in himself as the triune God. Again, the harmony and mystery of the Trinity is perfect beyond all measure, and they wanted to kill Jesus for it. But on our text goes, point number two, the Father loves the Son. Look at verse 20. He says, for, he's now, this is an explanatory comment, Jesus continues, for the Father loves the Son 
and shows him all that he himself is doing and greater works than these will he show him so that you may marvel. So the father has sent the son on a mission. God the son became flesh incarnate among us and this purpose of mission is that we might marvel. And the marveling is attached to these greater works the Father has given to Jesus. Now, the greater works are not merely that what we just saw Jesus do last week, heal an invalid man of 38 or so years, but what we see in the coming verses is the greater works that Jesus will do is nothing less than raising the dead. Jesus will raise the dead and give them eternal life. And the greatest work of all the Father will give the Son is accomplished when God the Son was crucified for our sins. The greatest work, the greatest deed that God has done through Jesus, God in the flesh, was to take the wrath that we each deserved upon himself, taking our guilt upon himself so that by faith we could be enveloped in the eternal love of God. And then that greatest work ever did not die with Jesus' death. No, Jesus killed death and his own death and then rose himself from the grave to glorified life, being the first fruits of our future resurrection. And so the greatest work that Jesus did leads to the greater works that he will do. One day you will be raised. Did you know that? Every single human being who has ever existed exists and will exist until the Lord returns will be resurrected. Now, this is getting into the point of next week. But every human being will be resurrected Meaning that your immaterial spirit part of you will be reunited with the physical part of you. Your physical body will be reconstituted and you will spend eternity in a resurrected body, but in one of two places. In either eternal glory or eternal damnation and wrath and hell. Jesus will raise every human being who has ever existed and you can bet your life on it. Where are you going? And how do you know? The context here is invitation. Jesus is looking at these very men who want to kill him for Jesus beginning to explain the mysteries of the Trinity, the triune God. They want to kill him for it. And now Jesus is speaking of the greater works of him raising the dead. And Jesus' point is invitation, raising the dead to glory, to glory. If you're not a Christian, I just want you to just think about, for a moment, the claims of Christ and why we Christians are so passionate about turning away from sin and turning to Jesus and following Jesus by faith. Because we think Your eternal destiny hangs on it. And we don't want you 
to spend eternity in hell where the worm never dies, Jesus says, where there's outer darkness, Jesus says, where there's weeping and gnashing of teeth, Jesus says. So we believe the greatest act of love that someone can ever do is to tell you the truth, to turn from your sins and turn to Jesus for salvation. And as sobering and horrible as it were, hell sounds, the exquisite halls of heaven, which is not a disembodied experience in the sky, God's eternal plan, when we die, if we're a believer, we go to heaven, we're disembodied, that's the intermediate state, that's not the eternal state. The eternal state is when Christ returns and makes a new heavens and new earth, and we live embodied for eternity on the new earth. And the life on the new earth is going to look a lot like this life, kind of, but infinitely better and without sin. Industry, farming, and other things. And so Jesus has a greater work to do to go to the cross to take our sins upon himself and that we can turn from our sins and trust Jesus' work because our work is worthless. But I want to draw your attention because we're thinking about the Trinity. I want to draw your attention to the beginning of verse 20. We've marveled at the mystery of the Trinity, one and three, three and one. But what is the relationship of the Trinity within himself or among them, however you say it? Do you, have you ever wondered, do you, you ponder and think about removing yourself and just what is it like for the Father to relate to the Son and the Son to the Father and the Spirit to the Father and the Son and the Trinity? Look at what the relationship of the Trinity is and look at why the gospel exists. Jesus declares the Father loves the Son. These simple words explain why anything exists at all. Did you know that? Do you know why you exist? Do you know why you can take your pulse? And feel the blood coursing in through your veins right now? It's because the Father loves the Son. Why the aspen groves turn colors? Why the snow falls? Why the deer is able to give birth? Why the crows are fed? It's because the Father loves the Son. Do you know why Jesus went to the cross? Because the Father loves the Son. Why Jesus bore our sins and rose from the grave? It's because the Father loves the Son. Do you know why you are redeemed and saved and washed white by the red blood of Christ? It's because the Father loves the Son. This shows us that God is not singular. He is not solitary. God does not change his mode to fit the occasion. Angry God in the Old Testament, gentle Jesus in the Gospels, and spirit filling the church into forever. That's the ancient heresy of modalism. If God was solitary and just a matter of changing modes instead of being triune, then God could not be love. Understand that any other religion that claims there is one solitary God, that God cannot, by nature, ontologically, be love. Why? Love requires an object, and a, 
a solitary God would be a narcissist God who loves himself in different versions of himself. But because God is triune, God can love because there's an object, so to speak, of love, namely Son and Spirit, or Father and Spirit, or go through the Trinity. Because God is triune, that's why 1 John can tell us God is love. Because love, 3 and 1, 1 and 3, the love of God is outward facing within himself. The love of God is outward facing within himself. God is other oriented within himself. He is not a narcissist within himself. In fact, theologians will argue that everything exists from this verse because the Father loves the Son. Do you recognize that God did not create because He was lonely? God did not save you because He was lonely or needed you. God did not create all things because He was deficient or lacking within Himself. God created because he overflows with love for the Son. And philosophically speaking, wants to bring all things into the love of the Son. And that has profound impact, friends, on what the Spirit is doing in your life right now by making you into the image of the Son, thinking of like Romans 28 and 29, 8, 28, and 29. That those whom he foreknew, he predestined to be conformed to the image of his son, that he, Jesus, might be the firstborn among many brothers. Oh, and by the way, the previous verse says that he's working all things for the good in your life. So all the things that God is doing in your life, the pains, sorrows, hardships, and more, are to the end that he would make you into the image of Jesus. Why? The Father loves the Son. And to peek ahead, because the question is, what is the relationship within the Trinity himself, the Father loves the Son, to, to cheat ahead and look at John 14 and Jesus' next major speech, John 14, 31, listen to what Jesus says. If I were to ask you, why did Jesus go to the cross? You would say, to save sinners like me. Yes and amen, hallelujah, praise the Lord. But did you know there's a greater reason that Jesus went to the cross than to save and make a church? John 14, 31. Jesus finishes his statement to the disciples. But I do as the Father has commanded me so that the world may know that I love the Father. He's, and then it says, rise, let us go from here. He's going to Gethsemane. Why did Jesus do what Jesus did? To save us? Yes. Undeniably, from the rooftop, shouted out, repent and believe in Jesus. He has died for us and can wash us white. Repent and believe. But underneath the joy that was set before him, and enduring the cross to save sinners like you and I, underneath that was that this cross of Christ would be a display of how much the Son loves the Father. 
So what is primary in the gospel then is not you and me. What is primary in the gospel is the Father's love for the Son and the Son's love for the Father. We are the beneficiaries of the love of God in Christ because He has saved us because God within the Trinity loves Himself. And that is the bedrock of our security of salvation, our hope and joy. Because what the Father wants to do is to bring you into that very same love. Why was Jesus betrayed? Why was Jesus brutalized? Why was Jesus mocked? Why was Jesus crucified? Why was Jesus buried? Why was Jesus raised the third day? Why did Jesus ascend into heavens and take his throne at the right hand of the Father? Why did Jesus pour out the Spirit so that the world may know that Jesus loves the Father? How much does the Father mean to the Son? How much does the Father mean to the Son? The cross. The cross was the cosmic megaphone of intra-Trinitarian love. The cross was the cosmic megaphone of intra-Trinitarian love. That's what's going on in John chapter 5. And this is how fierce and fantastic the love of God is. Because it's not against us, God is for us, because John 3.16 is still in your Bible, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. So there is dis no disconnect, there is no disunity, it's a matter of priority. The father loves the son, the son loves the father, and the spirit loves. Which then leads to the third point. What does this love that spills over from the triune God do? Verse 21, Jesus saves whom he wills. Verse 21, for as the Father, notice the word for again, Jesus is still explaining, for as the Father raises the dead and gives them life, so also the Son gives life to whom he will. Because Jesus does the work he sees the Father doing and is equal with the Father, so also Jesus saves as the Father saves. And once again, there's no disconnect within the Trinity. You know, peeking ahead again to John chapter 6, verse 37. Listen to this, John 6, 37. Jesus says, All that the Father gives me will come to me. And whoever comes to me I will never cast out. Both are true. No disharmony in God's saving gospel purposes. There's no confusion or competition. We've already read John 3. We've already seen that it's the Spirit of God who causes people to be born again and go from death to life. We just saw in John 6 that the Father gives those to Jesus whom he's going to save and he'll never cast them out. But here in verse 21, Jesus says the Son gives life to whom he will. To make this plain, why are you a Christian? Because Jesus 
willed it. There is no other possible interpretation of this text apart from adding philosophical presuppositions to it outside the Bible. The Son gives life to whom He will. There's no precondition other than God's salvation. It's the same thing we saw in John chapter 3. Who are those who are born again? Who are the whosoevers that respond to the gospel invitation? Those whom the Spirit causes to be born again. Those are the whosoevers. The free gospel call goes to all. And as we put the gospel call to all, the Son saves whom He will. Why are you saved? Because the Father gave you to Jesus. Why are you someone who loves God and has tears in your eyes as we sing these glorious songs? It's because the Spirit caused you to be born again. Friend, you had no part in that and take no credit in it because it's the will of God. And that was the argument of John chapter 1. Who are born not of the will of man nor the will of the flesh, but born the will of God. The love of God then spills over into the salvation of souls resurrected who will be resurrected from the dead. Since the Trinity is cooperative in your salvation and you are not, this means that God, here's why this is another reason for good news, not only God getting glory and you being brought into his love, because the Trinity is the one who has saved you, it means that God is able to keep you from stumbling and to present you blameless before his glory with great joy. Have you ever heard that before? Because Jesus saves whom he wills, it means that nothing can separate you from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus, our Lord, not even yourself. One of the ugliest doctrines is the notion that a Christian can lose their salvation. That's an ugly doctrine. That is not true. That is not true. Nothing can separate you from the love of God which is in Christ Jesus our Lord because the Father holds us with his love for the Son to bring us in that very love. The Son gives life to whom he will. Let me ask you a question. Do you want life? Do you want to be part of this love? He is not an exclusive club. There is an invitation. Turn to Jesus and be saved. This exquisite God has made all things into existence because of the love of the Father for the Son, and He is inviting you into it. Why won't you choose Him? Repent and believe. Believe and trust. Don't leave these doors without crying out to Christ to receive the free grace of salvation that he offers. Turn to Jesus and Christians, this is your God. This is why you live and exist to make much of him in this age. There are so many things detracting and distracting from the centrality of Christ and him crucified. Friends, this is the triune God. We ought to be addicted and riveted and saturated by worshiping this God-centered God and in doing so, his undeniably amazing love spills over into us for eternity. There's a reason 
to get out of bed in the morning, it's this. If there's a reason to devoting all of your life to advancing the kingdom cause, as it were, to, to preaching the gospel and making disciples of all nations of Jesus, this is why. Because the Father loves the Son, and the Son saves whom He wills. Point number four, to dishonor Jesus is to dishonor the Father. Verses 22 and 23. For the Father judges no one, but has given all judgment to the Son. Why? Verse 23, so that. So the Father has given all judgment to the Son. Why? Verse 23, so that all may honor the Son just as they honor the Father. That's the positive. Here's the negative. Whoever does not honor the Son does not honor the Father who sent him. Now, we'll leave the discussion on judgment for next time. For now, focus on that word honor. In the beginning of this message, I set that question before us. Can you understand God the Father correctly, but be hazy about Jesus? Or conversely, can you understand Jesus correctly, but be hazy with the Father? The answer, Jesus says, is no. If you get one wrong, you get the other wrong, so to speak. You necessarily get all three wrong. If you're wrong about the Trinity, you're wrong about Jesus. If you're wrong about the Trinity, you don't know who the Father is. How can I say this? Look at verse 22. The Father judges no one, but has given all judgment to the Son. Why did the Father do that? The beginning of verse 23. So that God's aim, because the Father loves the Son, God's aim is that all creation, that all may honor the Son in the exact same way. Worship, adore, praise, and more, just as they honor the Father. The Father has given Jesus all judgment because the Father wants Jesus the Christ to be honored in the exact same way the Father is honored, the Father is revered, and the Father is worshipped. And negatively, whoever does not honor the Son does not honor the Father who sent him. What does this mean? You know it. You, you've, you've heard it in your families. You've heard it at work. You've heard it as you've shared the love of Jesus with other people. You've read it on the cover of magazines. You've heard it in the songs. You see it in the TV shows. You see it everywhere. It is ubiquitous. It is increasingly common everywhere for people to say there are many ways to God. Right? The old illustration is the elephant and all the religious people just have blindfolds on and one guy's feeling a trunk and well, God's like this and one guy's holding the ear and God feels like this and one guy's holding the tail and God feels like this. One guy's holding the trunk and God feels like this. One guy's touching the side of the elephant and says God's like this, but it's all one elephant. False. We live in a world because we are addicted to autonomy and self-definition that really religion is a choose-your-own-adventure and make a God in your own image. What does Jesus say to the idea that there are many paths to God? Jesus says, no. Anyone who dishonors Jesus as not being the second person of the Trinity dishonors God. Why? Because they're believing in a fake God. It is common to say 
that the God of the Abrahamic religions, Judaism, Christianity, and Islam are the same God? What does Jesus say to that? No. Why? Now that Christ has come, the new covenant has made, the triune God clearly revealed to not honor Jesus as the Christ, God in the flesh, second person of the Trinity, is to dishonor the Father and to create a non-God. It is not the same God of the Abrahamic religions. To know of the Trinity, to know in the incarnation of Christ, and to deny that is to deny the true God and believe in a fake God. This is not a matter of merely making a mistake. It is to reject who God is in himself as he has revealed himself in his word. It is to take John 5 and tear it out of your Bibles. This is why Jesus declares in John 14, 6, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. How much wiggle room is in that statement? And now go back to what I said earlier at the beginning. Can you be 72% correct on the identity of Jesus? Right? The Latter-day Saint Jesus is a false Jesus. He does not save. The Jehovah's Witness Jesus is a false Jesus he does not save. The Jesus of Islam is a false Jesus and does not save. The Jesus of the Bible, second person of the Trinity, God in the flesh, he saves. This is important. This is why we Christians are Trinitarian. It's not a trite, ivory tower, halls of the seminary doctrine. It's John chapter 5. If you reject Jesus, you reject God. If you have a different Jesus, you have a different God. You can only understand and worship the Father if you understand and worship Jesus and vice versa and the Spirit. This is important. Do you need to know every single detail in order to be saved of this? No. But if you claim salvation and deny the Trinity, you cannot be saved. So then how are we saved? Final point. It's very brief. To escape judgment, believe Jesus for eternal life. Look at verse 24. Truly, truly, Jesus says, I say to you, Whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me has, not will have, has, present tense, eternal life. He does not come into judgment, but has passed from death to life. Friends, belief is bound not just to the actions and teachings of Jesus. Belief is bound to the identity of Jesus. And you can only rightly know the Father if you rightly know the Son, since Jesus is the revelation of the Father, right? The Word became flesh and dwelt among us. You've heard me say it already. 
a day of judgment is fixed and it is coming. But Jesus, right now, is the open door to the green fields of salvation and eternal life and the white shores of glory. Jesus, right now, is that. And some of us have walked through those doors... But pain, suffering, and confusion have blinded us of that. Friends, remember the gospel. Remember who Christ is. You are in those green fields. But some of you, you need to hear Jesus right now. And you need to believe that the Father who sent him. Believe the word of Christ because it's the word of the Father through Jesus. And you have present tense eternal life. You can escape judgment. Because Jesus was judged for you. Dear Christian, treasure and remember that there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus our Lord. And so many of us as believers walk into these doors with condemnation over us. Friends, have you believed? Then you are saved. You were, you are, and you will be because nothing can separate you from the love of God which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Do you remember that from a few moments ago? Jesus is showing us that because, the God, because God is triune, one and three, three and one, you have a sure and steadfast, unshakable salvation that's rooted in the Father loving the Son. And in loving the Son, there's an invitation to all who are willing to come to Christ to repent and believe Because God is love. Friends, do you want to be set free? Have you been set free? If the Son has set you free, you are free indeed. Because God loves himself and God loves us. Amen? Lord, we thank you for your unshakable love. It would be too good to be true. And nothing that no human mind could invent, but it is true. What greater news, Lord, can we hear that the Father loves the Son, and in loving the Son, you love us. And that love for us is seen magnificently at the cross, which is the display of the love of the Trinity. Lord, satisfy our souls with you, we pray in Jesus' name. And everyone said, Amen. Amen.